and welcome to another episode of UEFA Women's Euro 2022 Hot Takes. I'm Kelly Summers and in this series we get to meet a range of incredible individuals all over Europe who work in women's football from the pitch to the boardroom, the sidelines to the stands. We want to hear their hot takes on everything football and especially the huge tournament taking place in England this summer. Now in this episode we're going to be looking at the game from an entirely different perspective, looking at those growing the women's game from the boardroom. Kaylee Greve is a women's football marketing and sponsorship manager for UEFA, working at the forefront of the governing body's push for women's football. Welcome along, Kaylee. I'm sure you are incredibly busy at the moment. So thank you so much for giving up some of your time today to speak to us. No, no problem at all. Yeah, it's a bit surreal that we're here now having uh, celebrated 500 days to go twice. Suddenly we're at 10 days to go. <laughs> so yeah, all, all good though. Yeah, the countdown very much on so much excitement, but we'll come on to the tournament in just a few moments. But let's firstly discuss a little bit more about your role at UEFA. It sounds so exciting, particularly given all of the excitement around the women's game at the moment. Yeah, indeed. So I joined UEFA about five years ago now, so just before Women's Euro 2017. So I've been building up to this next milestone for a number of years now. And, and actually, as somebody who played women's football and coached and things, my professional career had always been with men's football. So I was at Celtic for a number of years, and then I was at the Scottish Football Federation, then an agency doing sport clients. So it was actually the first time coming to UEFA that even for me, professionally, I got to dedicate my time to women's sports and, and to women's football specifically. So so that's been hugely exciting, a completely different environment, blank canvas, different era. You're building a product and an identity and a brand, etc. in. So yeah, quite refreshing to look at the women's game over the last few years specifically, which has been great. Tell us then, when you say you're looking at the women's game, what is your role? We heard your job title then, Women's Football Marketing and Sponsorship Manager. That sounds like a pretty big deal. What do you get up to then on a day-to-day basis? When I joined UEFA, basically, women's football had nobody from a marketing perspective driving the women's side of the game. There was nobody specifically looking at that. But also, there'd already been a bit of a strategy put in motion before I arrived, which was very much focused on starting to break the cycle of, look, not enough girls play, not enough people are interested, not enough people are investing, and that kind of vicious cycle that those three elements then kind of create. So it already been decided before I arrived that participation was going to be the starting point of where UEFA was going to try and break through a little bit with women's football and try and put a bit of focus. So a significant budget was put aside to really look at how do we market the game better to girls and women? How do we get girls playing? How do we keep them playing longer? Which was quite in itself an interesting project on the basis that in football you or even in sport, you don't tend to market participation. You just assume it happens. You know, boys play football. That's what happens. Their dad liked football. They play football. It carries on through generations. You play football in the schoolyard. You've got clubs on your doorstep. It's just an ecosystem that's been around for so many years that we don't really think too much about the participation angle. So that was the first kind of major project that I stepped into was to really look at that. How could we get girls, like I say, starting the game younger? So we invested some time in the project and Playmakers that we do with Disney. Um, with that's really looking at young girls and how do we get them engaged with sport from a young age when the traditional offering of football is not something that's attracting them or their parents at the moment and then on the other side you're looking as they get a bit older huge numbers of girls are falling out of the game which is a precedent you see across many sports but football is quite profound 
So on that side, we were trying to look at, well, why do girls not stay? Why does the game not have a cool factor to it for teenage girls to think this is a good thing to be doing, whereas boys absolutely do think that. So spent a lot of time building campaigns with like Millie Bobby Brown, you know, who was like really coming to fame with the Stranger Things at the time and getting her to engage girls with football. Or Rita Ora, you know, we went on tour with her around Europe and we had football integrated into her shows and her audiences and things. Just trying to find ways of getting women's football into more popular culture and trying to appeal to more teenage girls from from that perspective so that's where the journey I would say started but at the same time we unbundled the sponsorship rights to women's football and that was a really interesting step because up until that point in 2017-2018 we had always just given away the women's rights with the men's packages so if you came in as a men's Champions League partner you were just kind of given the, the women's Champions League alongside that we were kind of tasked with, okay, start driving perception of, of participation of football, but also try and build some sort of marketing environment and platform that would attract sponsors to just come in and support women's football. And if you look at the brands like Just Eat Takeaway that have came in to, to support the women's game in the last couple of years, we've obviously created something pretty attractive now that brands want to be part of. You've mentioned brands a few times. They've clearly been key in growing the women's game and enabling you guys to do what you've wanted to do in terms of promoting the women's game. But can you quite put into words what an impact brands such as Justy and the other ones that have got on board have done for the women's game? I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, so much of the, the brand building around, if you look at the history of men's football and, and the explosion of it in certain markets and certain eras has come over the years through sponsorship and broadcast. And there's such important factors in the growth of the men's game. The women's game's coming more to fruition, I'd say, in a digital era. Not that broadcast is not important and that we'll see that massively with the women's euro for sure how important that's going to be to get this in front of people. But brands have a big role to play. And, you know, they come to the table to us with really strong marketing budgets themselves. So not only do they buy into the rights, but then they have their activation budgets. And you just have to look around England just now to see the number of campaigns on TV, on billboards and bus stops, on radio. Like this just hasn't happened at this scale before for the women's game in a market like this. So yeah, we're definitely in a space now we've got a real strong family of brands who specifically bought rights from us for this topic, who all have really, you know, we were quite picky in the market in the sense of we didn't just jump into everything that was on the table we wanted to work with brands who shared a vision with us who were willing to come in and invest in the marketing side that was just as important as the the fee that they come in and, and, and pay for the rights themselves so they're also investing as well in the athletes you know they're bringing them on as ambassadors they're putting them front and foremost in these campaigns and things as well so it's helping us drive so many elements of the game. Going back to your role then specifically, obviously it's a it sounds like a pretty high pressured role. You've got big responsibility um, under your kind of stewardship, so to speak. What have you found as being part of such a big organisation, being a woman in such a senior important role? How have you found that? On a day-to-day basis, I'm not sure how much you think about that. When you're blessed being passionate about something and you've been given a role to go and drive it, you just have an energy for it that you just can't compete with in some ways and that that drives you on a day-to-day basis and you're not thinking too much around you. I think what was quite interesting about the role was being able to 
be focused on just women's football. And there is a big debate around that, you know, women's football versus football versus men's football. And how do we talk about this and how do we grow it? How do we create one football for everybody, but at the same time, grow a product that needs specific strategic direction investment. So when you step in with women's football, it was a bit of a privilege to be able to say, okay, these bits can work for women's football just now, but also a little bit of space to just build our own thing and not just copy and paste over because women's football has not had the same starting point. We can do a lot more if we take some of the best parts and we adapt into the era that we're living in and the digital world that we're surrounded by. So, you know, I can't say that I've come across, you know, staff with bad attitudes to women's football, but of course the men's game is so big that the, the focus is so much on men's football in the business. And when there's just one or two of us focusing on women's football and what feels at the start as if everybody else's day-to-day is men's football, that was slightly daunting at the start. And I think that's been the biggest joy to see across the business is actually how many people take responsibility now in their own areas of expertise to include the women's game and what they're thinking about daily and what they're doing, which is pretty cool. I imagine there's probably a lot of your colleagues who maybe don't as directly work on the women's game who are probably quite envious of you with this tournament coming up. I imagine across the business now, whether people work on it on a day-to-day basis or not, they've got Euros fever as well. How much excitement is there for the tournament this summer? It's huge. I mean, like I say, it's it's almost surreal. I think the one-year delay with COVID has definitely been a huge factor for us and how we've dealt with that. And... I think for a lot of the staff who were men's Euro focused, like that was such a huge tournament to deliver last year in incredibly, incredibly difficult circumstances. So it was so interesting to see when people got out the back of that, when you'd expect them to be exhausted and, you know, mentally drained with it all, how many people immediately turned and said, well, can we get involved in women's Euro now? Can we come over? So the, the standards that we're driving, the ambition for the tournament and everything is just, even from the day that we set the targets for this to now, it's completely changed in terms of what we're trying to deliver now, what we thought we were delivering four, five, six years ago. I guess I should also say at this point, we're speaking um, about 10 days ahead of the tournament. In fact, it's not even 10 days, it's eight days before the start of the tournament. So it's even better that we're managing to speak to you today because I imagine you're so busy. What do you guys want to achieve from this tournament? When we're sitting here at the beginning of August, the finals happened, you're looking back. What what do you think we can achieve from this tournament? What do you want to get from it? On the whole, we've got a target of doubling from 2017, which in itself was a hugely successful tournament in the Netherlands. We're aiming to double a lot of the figures that we had, the tickets that we saw, the reach of the, the live viewership. The digital audience is a bigger factor now than it's ever been before. So the kind of you know active and known audience that we have across our digital platforms that you know five years ago wasn't really a focus at all. There's a general sense of look, we just want to bring more fans to the game through this kind of moment and then our strategy is to try and keep those fans engaged through you know the more annual tournaments and the, the domestic season of course and even from a broadcast perspective like this is the first time that I would say we've got markets where the broadcasters have bought the rights some of them are showing all the games you know, in the UK and in particular it's all on you know proper terrestrial main channels it's there it's in front of you every single day so the fact that people can follow the story all the way through can get to know the players can can feel the sense of a tournament and not just dipping in and out a little bit to see how their nation gets on that is going to be a huge step change for us. I'm sorry to bring this up, but of course, Scotland won't be at the tournament this summer. You're rolling your eyes at me now. I don't blame you, but who will you be supporting instead? 
Oh, there's a good question. I really couldn't say, MD. I think what's just fascinating to me about this tournament and even just looking at some of them, I mean, I know you can't read into these preparation matches too much that we've had over the last couple of weeks, but there's just so many teams, not least the Spanish, when you've got a huge cohort of the Barcelona stars in there as well. So, yeah, it's... I couldn't say who I'm supporting. I haven't even had time to think about that. But I would very much, of course, even as a Scot, would very much like the England team to go far, of course, to the tournament. That's an incredible thing when the hosts do well. So you're always wishing for that. But I'm really genuinely, I mean, I coach football, I play football. I, I just, as, even as a fan, just genuinely intrigued to see how this plays out. Yeah, it does feel like there's so many teams that could win it. Like people saying England are favourites and other people are saying, well, no, some of the teams you mentioned there, the Netherlands, there's so many teams that could win it. That's probably what makes it so appealing. Now, on this podcast as well, Kaylee, being with Just Eat, we've been talking about food and football and food, they go hand in hand, don't they? I don't think too many people watch a game of football, whether it's at home or at the game, without having a snack. So if you're watching a game at home, what's your go-to football takeaway, would you say? Oh, good question. Personally, I'm vegan, so I tend to go for like Indian takeaways. You're going to get a good bit of variety and, and range uh, there. In Switzerland, there's uh, where we live, there's not so much variety around in our small village. <laughs> We're in a very, very small place just now, so the options aren't huge. But I suppose the more traditional, maybe vegan burger and chips is one option or, a, or a, an Indian is probably my, uh, my go-to. You mentioned there you are living out in Switzerland. How have you found the food out there? <laughs> hey, well, yeah, as a vegan, not easy. They're very much, you know, meat, cheese, milk, chocolate. <laughs> yeah. It's very much the staple of the Swiss diet. So I don't think I, I fit in so well here on that front. <laughs> not, not quite what I was used to back in Scotland either. Not, not so many things are deep fried and as much as I hate to stereotype it. <laughs> You did that, not me, because I was about to say to you, is there anything from back at home in Scotland that you miss? I wasn't going to mention anything deep fried, but you've brought it up. Is there anything you miss other than probably the variety that you get at home? Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose there's that actually. I mean, I'm laughing about Scotland and Glasgow, the restaurant variety is incredible these days. Like a really, really good place for, for eating. So I suppose you miss a bit of that, just generally that variety and opportunity and Uh, Let's bring it back around to the topic of football then Um, and just some of the hot topics that are kind of in the industry at the moment because the Netherlands is joining countries such as the US and Spain in paying women's international players the same amount of money as men. Now, in England, Norway and Brazil, they've already equalised pay for men and women. What sort of impact do you think this can have on the game going forwards? I think it sets a tone for narrative. I think these moments and these things really do set a bit of a benchmark of, look, it's not a perfect world and we know that there's a lot of things we can't undo, we can't change the past and we have to work with what we've got just now. But these are the kind of key moments where you think, well, these are things that we can control and don't take a huge amount of financial hardship on anybody or taking away from anybody to give to others that, that can set a, a tone and a precedent for how we want this to go forward and just help to invest more and more in the women's game on that front. So, yeah, I'm a big a big fan of these types of moves. While being realistic about where we are, absolutely, and what we need to do next and how we develop the product, there's definitely a case of saying, well, it can't always just be what you own there and what you bring in because nobody's been allowed to bring in and grow the game and invest in the game in the same way. So that argument for me just doesn't stack up. And when we've got the opportunities to do the right things, we should absolutely do that. 
it can sometimes feel like there's a bit of not finger pointing. Well, that's the best phrase I can think of to describe it. But in terms of people saying, well, it's the governing body's fault. It's the media's fault. It's so-and-so's fault or responsibility. Whose responsibility is it, do you think, to keep growing it? Or is it is it about the collective? Football's such a huge sport in the sense it is such a reflection almost of society, you know, because like such a huge proportion of the world are invested in football, follow football and, and support football, play football. So in a sense, it takes everybody. In, and you see that in the women's game, there was a number of years where the governing bodies were investing in women's international football, but the club game lagged behind. So when people got interested via a women's euro, for example, and, and the interest and awareness took that little jump up, there wasn't anything then to fall into to keep following it because the leagues hadn't caught up and the you know the Champions League wasn't in a position to kind of offer much to to the average supporter, etc. So there's just so many elements of this that, that are the building blocks to how we grow this game. And I think a lot of people are taking responsibility and that's what we see through this Women's Euro as well. If you look at England, you look at where the investment's coming from, how much you know the whole cities are investing, how much the Arts Council and the Lottery are investing around this tournament, the government the FA themselves and UEFA, you know, that is what it's taking to get this tournament to this standard and to this level. How do you think social media has affected the growth of the game as well? Any media in any era is important. And for us, as you say, where women's football is at, social media is a huge part of that. And that has been a huge opportunity for micro communities in the women's game to build and, and start creating this movement behind the women's game. And so absolutely for in terms of getting the building blocks and the narrative of the game out there for players to start building their own brands when the the visibility of them on the more traditional channels has not been as great as you'd hope it would be sometimes but likewise you know that plays a part but when you get to this summer and you see the broadcasters who are investing and how they're going to get this into millions and millions of homes across the world that is also still very important. It's still really important that we have the broadcasters back in the game. It is a collective, but I definitely see social media having been a key component of getting all of this kick-started and given us a starting point. I can't believe we've got this far into our chat and we haven't talked about the We Play Strong campaign because that's surely been one of your most successful campaigns, has it, in terms of the women's game? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it started as a campaign and it still exists in some strands as a campaign, but it kind of turned into itself its own like media platform, you know, where we just literally have, you know, I've got a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old daughter who both play football. So, I'm, you know, kind of very, very acutely aware through them that what I think is cool content is not cool content. So kind of taken, <laughs> <laughs> not cool at all. So over the years, we've very much built that platform to be that we get the players themselves to create this content. We don't try and create it for them. We create it, we produce it, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do the, the heavy lifting for them to make sure the content gets out there. But that's all we do, you know, the, the content ideation. We do a little bit off sometimes, but, you know, on the whole, we work with players, young grassroots players, professional players, to tell us what they want to, to do and the, what type of content they want to produce and how that portrays them. And that, I think, has been a big key to the success of that platform. It's not UEFA thinking this is what's cool, so we'll create content for teenage girls and, and put it out there and, and and we'll have a winning formula. Like, it's just never going to work like that. So, um, but yeah, the replay strong stuff in terms of, you know, like what we do on TikTok and Snap and on, on Insta, YouTube. We just, yeah, we let the girls produce and create the majority of that content, which I think makes it a lot of fun. 
It's just one of those campaigns when you hear someone say we play strong, you straight away can visualise it. You know what you're talking about, which is for me the sign of a good campaign and has done, well, it's not even a campaign, as you said then, it almost feels like a bit more of a movement as such. Yeah, it's a community. And I think the fact that through that community, grassroots girls, fans and professional players mix, like the players, you know, they come on and they comment, they like things, they talk to the players, they respond to things. Like our podcast is another great example, I think, of us going out and tackling real issues with that. You know, we have a whole podcast series and I think people think it's because of the way we title it is, you know, we have the episode where it's like the one we were, where we were beat by 15-year-old boys or the one we should go back to the kitchen or, you know, we, we've taken these relatively horrible slurs about women's football and we've turned them into discussion points, but not actually for the people to say them. It's nothing, we're not really interested in changing their minds. It's about empowering girls to know that these things that are said about the game are not true and here's the reality of it and here's the the people who were involved talking and here's access to them so you can listen to the podcast and you can go on live on TikTok and ask your own questions and just make it super interactive Um, and I think that's what the media today allows you to do which is pretty cool. Yeah, it certainly does. Well, also on this podcast, because we're called Hot Takes, we ask all of our guests to tell us their hot takes on this summer's Euros. What do you think is going to happen in the tournament in July? I'd like to think Ada's going to have a big influence in this. I'd really, after seeing how sharp she was looking in the Women's Champions League final, I think having her back in international football, playing at her best, is going to be a huge boost for, for Norway. Um, but seeing the England team play the other night, the, the second half against the, the Netherlands, you know, they're a relatively young team and of course they've got a lot of superstars, but based on, you know, the Champions League season, the teams didn't go quite as far in the tournament as some of the other nations' teams did. I think maybe before I was a little bit nervous, hoping that England would do well, but maybe not as convinced. But I think after seeing how they played the other night, I was, yeah, a little bit more confident that that they've got a lot to offer in this tour as well. So, yeah, I I don't know where else to go with this because I could talk about it all day. (laughs) (laughs) And very quickly as well, your role is so unique. In terms of hot takes, tell us something we may not expect or may not know about working for such a big governing body like UEFA. One of the most interesting things to me was working with different cultures. Like UEFA is 55 associations. And I often think if I was trying to do like We Play Strong in America, my job would be so much easier because it's one language, very different cultures, I'm sure across a huge continent, but just that sense of everybody having a sense of the same culture, pop culture references. Trying to work at UEFA with 55 different countries, I think 40 eight odd different languages that you're trying to to communicate through all at different stages of development in the women's game it was probably the biggest challenge that I faced not realizing that not everybody thinks like a a Scottish person not everybody has the same humor as a Scottish (laughs) person which got me in trouble a few times (laughs) most people don't understand what I'm saying and so the joke just goes whoosh so thinking about UEFA we, we think about football in this quite specific way but actually Europe in terms of football is such a mix that yeah I think that's been for me the most challenging interesting didn't ex- quite anticipate it thing about UEFA uh, that I would that I would pick up on. I'd never thought of that at all. It's a very good point. Well, Kaylee, on that note, we will let you go because, as I said, this is an incredibly busy time for you. We really appreciate you joining us today. And you can tell your daughters they might not think their mum's cool, but I certainly do. And you're the only (laughs) Scottish person I think I've ever heard that said they wouldn't mind if England did too well. So you're automatically (laughs) my favourite Scot. (laughs) Well... 
we've got to be mature about these things. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll say goodbye. Kaylee, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Enjoy the tournament um, and your role. I'm sure it's going to be a really exciting few weeks for everyone at UEFA. Well, this has been UEFA Women's Euro 2022 Hot Takes. I'm Kelly Summers. We'll see you next time. Bye.